go ahead and open it to the book of Matthew. We are currently in a series uh, looking at the Sermon on the Mount, and this is Jesus, arguably his most famous sermon, and really the most, probably the most famous sermon, period. Um, this is in Matthew chapters 5 to 7. Uh, you can think about this as uh, Jesus is uh, beginning his earthly ministry and, and him sort of rolling out uh, his platform, his agenda, what, what life and his kingdom would look like uh, if he were in charge, is some of the things that we've been saying. And we look through the first uh, 10 to 11 verses, which are considered the Beatitudes, which are, are character traits or characteristics of life in the kingdom. And, and then as he's moved out of that, he's beginning to get to the meat of the sermon, which is where we find ourselves uh, last week and also today. Um, and last week, where this changed for us is Jesus begins to address the law, which up until this point, he hasn't, he hasn't said a word about it. And, um, and what did he say about the law? Did he say that he's come to abolish it? That he's come to do away with it? No, he says he has not come to abolish the law, but he's come to fulfill it. And in the rest of chapter 5, beginning with our section this morning, he's going to lay out about six examples of what this actually looks like. And so let's, um, let's turn our attention then uh, to the reading of God's Word as we look at this first one of what it, what it means to fulfill the law, uh, but more importantly, how the law is being misused. And, um, and, and, and so as we read this, um, let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word. Beginning in verse 21, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the, to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First to be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid every last penny. Let me pray and ask God to teach us his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we ask now that you would graciously give us your spirit, that you would open our eyes, that you would open our ears to see and to hear your word to us. That as a seed goes into good soil, such as our hearts, that you would soften them as good soil, that, that, that your word would penetrate deep into our hearts, and that it would grow, and as it grows, that it would change us. Uh, would you do this for your glory, we pray. Amen. Back in 2012, Tim Keller was speaking at a Gospel Coalition event, and he gave this illustration, um, or shared this illustration that I'm about to share with you, um, uh, that has to do with the Sermon on, on the Mount. And um, um, I was so captivated by it, I actually went and looked it up myself. Um, and and here, here's what it, what it was. He had quoted uh, from a re reform journal uh, from 1987 
titled God and Man at Texas A&M. And this was written by the professor there at the time, Virginia Stem Owens. And what Virginia Stem Owens did to her freshman class was uh, assign them the reading of the Sermon of the Mount. Okay, a reading of the Sermon on, on the Mount. Uh, again, this is Texas, right? College Station. Read it. She assumed most people being in Texas were familiar with the Bible to some degree, probably had heard this sermon, probably had read it. The assignment was simple. Read it and just uh, write a response to it. And part of what she wrote in this journal was her amazement at the response to it and her conclusions as well. So first, what, what, what did people say? Well, as she began to pick up her first paper, she says the first thing she noted was, was this, that the, the, the first paper that she read was, uh, sorry, the first paper she read, the person noted, in my opinion, quote, religion is one big hoax. Okay, this was an interesting starting place. She moved on to the next paper, which read, there's, there's an old saying that you shouldn't believe everything you read, and it applies in this case. At this point, she's wondering, what, what, what is going on here? So she picks up the third paper, which reads, it is hard to believe something that was written down thousands of years ago. In the Bible, Adam and Eve were the first two people, and if they were uh, then, and, and, and if they were then, where did black people come from? Also, the Bible says nothing about dinosaurs, and I think God would mention them. And at this point, she's sort of recognizing how rattled she is at the responses that she's getting. She was expecting, you know, a little bit of familiarity with it and a little bit of, 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 of charity as well. But now she's getting more and more angst. And as she continues to read these responses, here's, here's the next response. The stuff the churches preach is extremely strict and allows for almost no fun without thinking it is a sin or not. This is what somebody wrote in response to the Sermon on the Mount. Next, I did not like the essay Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> It was hard to read, and it made me feel like I had to be perfect, and no one is. One more, the things asked in this sermon are absurd. To look at a woman as adultery, that is the most extreme, stupid, unhuman statement that I have ever heard. Virginia Stem Owens would go on to write that this was not exactly intellectual agnosticism talking here, but rather, she writes, this was the real thing, a pristine response to the gospel, unfiltered through the two millennia of cultural haze. What's her point? She actually goes on to say that those of these responses were a little stark and, 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 and aggressive, they're actually hearing and reading the text. That if we, if we come to the Sermon on the Mount and we listen to what Jesus is, is going to say to us, especially in a text like this this morning, what other response, if you are listening, is there, then this is absurd. This is nonsense. This is offensive. This is impossible. This is the problem with religion. But what Professor Owens noted was, no, this is exactly, this is exactly the right response that someone should have if they are truly listening to Jesus. While this might sound disheartening, I think it's good. 
And I think that, that, that for us in this room, as we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount, especially as we get to this section, because it's going to be like this for a while, there's a part of us that needs to recognize that, that this is the impossibility of the sermon. This is the part that just crushes us. And where we left last week is that's actually the point. He's going to say something to you this morning, and, and there's going to be no escape for you. In other words, the law is going to crush you, and the question that he's asking is, where are you going to run? And there's always two options to that, right? There's the pull up the bootstraps and try to work harder and try to figure out how I can earn this righteousness on my own, or there's the other option, run to Jesus, the only one who can give us the righteousness that we really need. Why? Because I've not come to abolish the law, I've come to what? Fulfill the law. Okay? As Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote, when we read this, there's a sense in which our hearts say, Lord, save me from the Sermon on the Mount. And if that's, if that's where you are this morning, especially as we read this text, I, I, along with Virginia Owens students, you're in a good spot. You're in a good spot. And so what I want us to do for this first part, because we'll be, be, be opening up layers of this as we go through this section in the, in the following weeks, is I just want to look at two things. I want to look at the misuse of the law that Jesus is exposing, and then I want us to look at the proper use of the law that Jesus turns us to, okay? The misuse of the law, and then the proper use of the law. Because my hope is that as we, as we go through this and as we see what he's teaching, what we recognize is that when we get to the end of, the, of it, when we get to the proper use of the law, we begin to see that the law is not something that crushes us anymore. The law is no longer a burden, and why? Because of what Jesus has done for us. He has changed our relationship to that law, which means now that the, that the law is something that is beautiful. And I want us to see why and how it's beautiful as he commends this to us in this hard and difficult text. So let's begin with the misuse of the law. First there, verses 21 to 22, you have heard that it was said to those of old. You have heard that it was said to those of old, but I say to you, this is the formula that we're going to hear over six times in the next uh, several passages in this chapter. And what many recognize or think, at least at first when they read this, is they think that, well, Jesus is, is saying, he, he's referring to the Old Testament or what, what would be the scriptures then. And he's saying, this is what's of old, but I'm changing that. And this is what, what, what it really is. And this is what's caused a lot of, um, you might say, uh, aggression or, or, or curiosity even uh, with Jesus and his ministry. Who are you, Jesus? What have you come to do? Are you, are you starting something new? Um, it, it, do you even care about the law? And, and, and as we said last week as well, he's, he's sort of beginning to um, anticipate some of those uh, rumors and some of those thoughts. And so here in this formula, it, it's not that he's saying the, the old translation, right, the, the Old Testament is, is no longer binding or that it's not important. Uh, let me tell you what it is. He is actually referring to, and he will be throughout the rest of this chapter, to bad uses or interpretations of the law. So to say that you have heard something is essentially to say, like, you, you know that tradition in your family or that saying that you have um, that you maybe have kind of gotten wrong and it doesn't really mean what you think it means? All right, 
let me extract that and let me tell you exactly what the meaning of it is. Except he's doing that with Scripture, okay? Well, how, how is the law actually being misused? And I, I'll say this in short, it is being reduced to what many theologians refer to as the letter of the law. And you might have heard this before. The law has two parts. There's a, there's a letter of the law, right? And there's a spirit of the law, right? That goes beyond the letter and it probes the depths of the motives of our own hearts. Jesus in this text is quoting what the old law or what those of, of, of old have said about this. And they, what it is is they are quoting both the sixth commandment, which simply says, thou shalt not murder. But they have fused it with Numbers 35 that says, whosoever murders will be liable for judgment. And that is a civil, a civil law. The, co the commandments are moral laws, Ten Commandments. What he's, what's, what's reading in Numbers there is civil. What's the point? When you bring those two together, you take something, right? You take the spirit of that command and you reduce it to its letter. And this is what he's saying is the misuse of it. You could put it this way, putting the two together changes the import of the spirit of that command. All right, let me try to illustrate this for a second, uh, just as it refers to letter or spirit of the law. Um, the letter of the law when you're driving on a highway whose speed limit is 55 miles per hour is just that. To go 56 is to break that law. And there are some people in here that just sort of got energized and were like, that's right. 55, good. 56, not good. Okay, um, but there's a spirit behind that law, is there not? Right, there's a spirit behind the law of miles per hour on highways, and that spirit is, is that we hope that this is something that will benefit the safety of everybody, okay? And so to, to, to go with just a letter is to reduce the law, as it were, to just a command, and to ignore what its spirit is, which is actually to, to, to go and serve and care for the betterment of other people. And what Jesus is actually saying that they are doing, if I could stick with that illustration, is they're driving the speed limit, right? They're going 55 miles an hour, but they're texting the whole way there. Now, would we say that that is, by any stretch of the imagination, caring for the spirit of the law in the sense that it is caring for the benefit and well-being of other people? No. The same thing is happening with this sixth commandment. Jesus is saying is that the commandment, the moral commandment of, of thou shalt not murder, carries with it way more import than just you physically killing somebody. And the misuse of the law that he's pointing at is then reducing God's commandment to just its letter. So how, how is this happening? Or I should say, where does Jesus go from here? He says, beginning in verse 22, everyone then he says, everyone, though, who is angry with his brother will be liable for judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable for, to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Now, when I first read this, I think that seems like a big jump, right? We're talking about murder in one hand, and now we're saying that it is the same thing as anger. And what Jesus is simply doing is illustrating 
the spirit of the law behind the commandment of thou shalt not murder it. And he does this in two ways. He talks about these two terms of, of, um, of anger um, and insult. And the first here is raka in verse 22. And this word is used for insulting one's mind. Okay? This would be uh, if you were ever to call somebody uh, uh, verbally or under your breath an idiot um, or maybe uh, something worse. Right? That's raka. Right? And, it, and it sort of attacks a person's mental capacity that they are um, you know, dumb, you might say, or uh, worthless in that capacity. The second, though, fool there in verse 22, we, we, we don't use the f- word fool as much, but it was a, it was a stronger word there. It, it attacks more of what, the, what we would say is the heart of somebody. Okay? Um, it, it's an insult to one's character. And so, uh, as one commentary writes, if raka attacks the mind, right, then fool insults the heart, But what do they both have in common? And this is Jesus' point, getting behind the spirit of the law. They both imply the worthlessness of something or someone. And what's ultimately behind the sixth commandment, according to Jesus, is the preservation and the building up of mankind, which would be the restoration and reconciliation of relationships between one another, not the destruction and demise of individuals. Which means that if murder is the ultimate thing that someone can do to another to deem them worthless, then the seeds of murder are anything that actually move towards the image of God and declare it worthless. In the movie Walk the Line that chronicles the life of Johnny Cash, we learn of of a major, the major life event in Johnny Cash's childhood. And if you know anything about, if you've seen the movie, if you know anything about his life, you know that when he was really young, um, he had an older brother they were working in the farm. They were working in, uh, at this point in the movie, uh, in the barn where they're working with a saw. And there was an accident with the saw when his brother was working on it, and he was standing there, but his brother was the one uh, working on it at this point in time. And the saw blade comes apart, and it actually uh, hits his brother, and it, and it kills his brother. And so Johnny's crushed by it. Uh, but this actually according to the movie and certainly any biography that you would read of his, this actually wasn't the event of his childhood that haunted him for the rest of his life. Right? It was what, what his dad had said to him in the hours after the death of his brother. And what was that? It should have been you. It should have been you. The wrong son died. And even in the scene, uh, the person playing Johnny Cash's dad is taking this tin can and sort of rattling his hand inside of it. And he looks at it and says, what is that? It's empty, just like you. These were the words from his dad to Johnny. That I would argue not only haunted him the rest of his life, but set the course for the rest of his life, that he lived the rest of his life trying to get out from under that language. What is that? That's raka. That's, that's you're worthless. And what the sixth commandment is trying to do is it's not just trying to say, hey, I haven't actually physically murdered somebody. It's trying to get you to, what, what have you done to preserve and reconcile and restore the livelihood of somebody that goes well beyond just taking their life. Because I would say that Johnny Cash 
wasn't, he wasn't murdered that day, but he was murdered that day. So we could say that Johnny Cash's father is not guilty of breaking the letter of the Sixth Commandment and, and, and feel pretty good about himself for not doing that. But what we can't say, and what Jesus is pointing out here, is that he can't say that he is, he, he is righteous in fulfilling the spirit of the law. And this is what's underneath everything that he's addressing at this point. The misuse of the law, the taking it for its own means, codifying it, making it manageable as the things that we said. It is missing the entire point. And when we miss, or miss the, the entire point and import of the law, we not only harm our fellow brother and sister, which is what the law was intended to do, we actually say something, uh, we distort the character of God, which is something the law was intended to do as well. Okay. Before we move on, it needs to be said, not all anger is bad anger. We know that. There is righteous anger. And while we're not going to get in that today, um, that's not where Jesus is pointing, right? And he's asking us uh, to recognize that, 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 one, how are we, right, misusing the law? How are we glued to the letter of the law but neglecting the spirit of the law? Whether it's the sixth commandment, whether it's any commandment, whether it's love God and neighbor, right? How is it that we begin to sort of prop ourselves up because we are better than somebody else because we have not done the letter of the law while at the same time neglecting the very spirit, which is arguably the most important part. See, there's anger that wells up, right, in all of us. Maybe it's in the moment where you are uh, confronted with somebody who has opposing political parties or a part of a political party or opposing ideology. And as you're listening to this person on the news, or maybe you're actually, um, who knows, uh, talking to this person in person, hopefully, you might actually think on your breath, what a scumbag that they would believe this. That's Raqqa. You're guilty. Right? There's the anger that wells up after a child disobeys or disrespects a parent over and over and over again, and, and, and you have had it, and before you can calm yourself down, you are disciplining and anger. And now what matters is not what is actually best for the child, which is what God has given you responsibility over, but what is best for you. It's what you want. And what do you want? I want respect in this moment, or I want peace in this moment, or I want obedience in this moment, and I am going to get it out of you. Which is, which is actually taking that individual and, and, and belittling them to an object. That is raka. Or maybe it's the anger that wells up when someone's values are different from yours and you just think, see, this is what's wrong with the world today. Friends, that is not righteous anger. That is, you are worthless. And the ultimate way that I could show that is by killing you. But currently, I'll do it with my thoughts and not my actions. And Jesus is saying, you haven't kept that. The law requires you to keep that. All of this breaks the sixth commandment. We could, there's a, he's gonna go through a couple other commandments, but this is enough. 
right? All this breaks the Sixth six Commandment, which, which means if, if you've said or you thought things that would tear at someone's worth or value, right, you have murdered. To be clear, Jesus is not saying that the seeds of murder that are in all of our hearts is the same thing as the act of murder, but they do carry the same judgment under the law. Why? Because they fail to keep both the letter and the spirit, which is what the law requires. And Jesus starts here, what I believe, he starts here because we we think that the last commandment, the commandment that we would be furthest from breaking would be this one. So he levels us all. Think you're not a murderer? Maybe not by the letter, but certainly by the Spirit. Which is why, if you're listening, this is why we hate the Sermon on the Mount. It condemns everyone. So what are we going to do about this? Well, first... We're going to stop murdering. Stop it. Right. Wouldn't you love it if that was my application as your pastor? Stop it. Um, on a more serious note, right, we're going to run to Jesus. As I said, the law is crushing, and it will crush you unless you know where to run. And we have to run to the one that actually got crushed by it for our sake. And so we're going to run to Jesus, and and where are we going to run? We're we're going to run to the one who says that blessed are what? The poor in spirit. I told you, we're not leaving this. We're always coming back to this. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. See, you knew you were poor in spirit, but maybe not this poor in spirit. And Jesus invites you to come back again and to go through it again, right? right to recognize your limitations and what you, your neediness, right? To, to then repent and mourn and grieve the ways that you have not lived out uh, God's righteous standard. And then to stand there before him in meek, humble uh, openness saying, I need something. And what is that? It's a hunger and a thirst for his righteousness. This is where we have to run. And the beauty of this, why I love like, how he even set this up, this actually became more clear to me going through it this week, is that his whole point in the way that he gives this uh, instruction in this text is, is that he assumes, because this sermon is what life in the kingdom looks like, he assumes that you are no longer condemned by this law. And why does he say that? Because he doesn't tell you in the next verse to actually run to me, be reconciled, right? He's assuming that this is part of what it means to be a Christian. And the reason why he's assuming that is because this is what it means to hunger and the thirst for righteousness, to go to Jesus. You have what you need. Now go fulfill the law. Now go out into the proper uses of the law, which is exactly where he sends his disciples next. So let's go there briefly. Look, look at less, less of these verses 23, 24. 
I'm thinking more that as I give this sermon, this is really becoming sort of a framework for the rest of these five things. But um, they they won't all say the same thing, I promise. But I, I want us to get an understanding of how this works because this stuff doesn't go away. Your poverty of spirit is never going away. And so where are you going to run? At the same time, both letter and spirit matter. And so what Jesus is trying to say at the very least, because of the righteousness he has given you, your relationship to the law has changed because your relationship to God has changed. And if that's true, the law is no longer something that crushes you as a burden. The law is now something beautiful that you can go and pursue, which which is something that reflects the beauty of God and, and his character to the watching world, which is something that loves other people, right? I'm jumping ahead here a little bit, but like, just think about the Sixth Commandment. Isn't it great that, that when you obey the Sixth Commandment, isn't it great for you and for other people when they do that? Okay, obviously. So what is this proper use then of the law, right? We, we've gone to Jesus. We've run to him. This is what we're going to do. We're going to remember that we have the righteousness that we need. And so he's going to send us now in the direction of this proper use, right? And that's the rest of verses 23 to 24 It is the proper use of the law, which Sinclair Ferguson says this, that, that what, is, what, what is summed up in the proper use of the law is right relationships with one another, Right relationships, he says, with one another is part of the meaning of the commandment not to murder. Because the commandment to not do something in the Bible implies that we should what? Do its opposite. If the command in the Bible is do not murder, then we are commanded to do the opposite, which is what? To work for the well-being and welfare, restoration, reconciliation of our fellow man. And you can begin to see, even, even here, right, the misuse of the law, taking, taking the law and reducing it to its letter, 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 strips out all of this. And maybe I find myself getting a little angry as well. I'm sure Jesus was angry, right? Because you begin to see what it tears at. And you begin to see the selfishness that we impose upon the law so that we can feel good about ourselves. I digress. What Jesus does, though, is he shows us what the opposite of murder is in these final two verses, which is seeking and maintaining reconciliation. Look at verse 23, right? If you are offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift, both letter and spirit right next to each other. But there is a priority to one, isn't there? And the priority is given to the spirit of the law, which is to go and reconcile. Jesus strikes first at right religion here. Jesus is saying, what's more important, bringing your gift or offering to God or making sure your brother or sister has nothing against you? In other words, it is the letter of the law. Uh, it is the spirit of law that he is pushing towards and, and not the letter at this point. Therefore, Jesus highlights what we would say is the necessity the necessity of reconciliation before returning to your gift uh, uh, to the altar. As David said of old, he said, God, if you delighted in sacrifice or burnt offering, I would what? I would bring it. But a broken and contrite heart you will not despise. However, 
once we have that broken spirit, let us offer our gifts to the Lord. Proper use of the law speaks to the necessity of reconciliation in our relationships according to Jesus. What's to note here, though, is that this is so important that Jesus is saying that you are actually in some way responsible for your brother or sister's anger that could actually lead to breaking the law. Notice he says, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, go. This is the necessity of the reconciliation, which is the first part of the proper use of this law. Second, though, he speaks to the urgency of it. And this is verse 25. This is a different illustration. He says, come to terms quickly, right, with your accuser while you are going to him to court, lest, there, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Here, Jesus emphasizes the urgency of the law which looks like reconciliation here because of the nature of anger and the nature of mankind's patience and how quickly it can grow and mature into the very act of something such as murder. What's also interesting here is that Jesus calls us to reconcile not just with our brother right, and sister, but with our enemy and accuser as well. Therefore, the necessity and the urgency of reconciliation in relationships is one of the proper uses of the law because why it works against what anger and murder deem as worthless. And it seeks to restore and to build up what God values and loves above everything else. In other words, what Jesus is saying is that keeping the law here is not only not murdering somebody, but it is also working towards the betterment, the thriving of others around you. Which means two things by application. At the very least, attempts to reconcile and restore relationships, they are not optional. They are not optional for us. They are not optional for disciples, no matter how difficult or in the wrong the other person might be. But second, it must also take priority in our life. Leave your offering or gift at the altar, God says, and go and be reconciled and then come back and get your gift. What is this? This is peacemaking. Blessed are the peacemakers. Now, there's a lot more to say about this, which I'm glad to leave uh, this week's episode on our podcast. Right? How many times do I go to my brother or sister and reckon, to reconcile? It's a good question. What if I've done everything I can do, but the relationship still isn't restored? It's a good question. What if I've forgiven them, but I'm not ready to be in a relationship with them? Great question. When Jamie gets back, we'll answer it on the podcast. But this all circles back to peacemaking. Right? This necessity and this urgency. And isn't it great, right, not just to be a peacemaker, but to be in right relationship with people? Early on in my marriage, I learned quickly, you know, if, if Ada and I were having a, a, a fight, disagreement, whatever it was, um, you know, and you haven't worked through it, but you got to get up in the morning, you got to go out the door, and you got to go to work. And at, at this time when I was going through this, I was working in college ministry, so I'd go to the college campus and go to work. 
And, you know, the thing that I found is that it didn't matter, like, again, could be her fault, could be my fault. We, we were not on the same page, and everybody suffered because of that. I didn't want to be, I, I couldn't think like critically for my students. I couldn't, I didn't really want to be where I was because I was either worried about what was going on back home or I wanted to get this resolved or I wanted her to see that I was right. Um, whatever the case may be, right? Oh, but how sweet it is, right, to get home and to, to, to reconcile, to be heard and understood, right? Because only then can I go out into the world whole. Jesus has already told you, you are reconciled. You are whole. And this is why you can go out into the world to do the same. Right? It's because somebody else, right, had urgency and necessity on their minds when they were thinking of you. And it wasn't, it wasn't me, right? It was Jesus thinking about the urgency and the necessity of the cross on your behalf that you could be reconciled to him, that you might have what you need, what, to go be performers of the law. And it's beauty, right, to serve others, to reflect the character of God to others, because that's what the law does. No longer crushed by it, right, but able to, 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 to serve through it, able able to go at it knowing that at every drop, right, at every single mishap, we, have a, we, have a, we come back to our poverty of spirit. We come back to the reason we need Jesus in the first place. All to say that your relationship has changed with Jesus means your relationship to the law has changed. Because you weren't crushed. He was on our behalf so that we might have life. This is the Sermon on the Mount. We'll pick it up next week as we look at his teaching on divorce and adultery. Or adultery. It's not going to get easier, right? But I'll leave you with this, right? What, what is your motive for obedience? Why do you obey? Is it, is it to make sure you're doing the right thing? We probably all have a list of reasons for this. Let me give you one, one thing that has changed for you this morning because of this. Right? Your obedience is no longer uh, to get out from under the condemnation of the law. You have failed it. Jesus made that clear. But are you not restored? Which means that your obedience to the law, your motive for it, your reason behind it, Christian, is now not to get out from under that burden, but it is to go further and further into relationship with your king. You see that? That is to know the law, to obey it, is actually to know Jesus more. That's how the law becomes beautiful to us. It is no longer condemning. It no longer crushes us. It crushes him so that we may have life eternally. And now that that relationship has changed, However we might misuse the law here on out, right, we are always brought back to the ability to move forward to, to the proper use of the law, which always has God and neighbor in mind, that you might know him more. Would that be the reason we serve? Would that be the reason we obey? Would he, would he be the one we run to as a result? Let me pray for us. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us. We pray this morning that where we have felt conviction by your spirit, I pray that you would lead us, lead them, lead your people to rest. Not so that we can uh, feel good about ourselves and forget about it, but Lord, Lord, that we would understand the right relationship we have with you and how that fuels and empowers our ability to go be the people you've called us to be. And that in that process, we would know you more. Would you do that for us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.